Citizen Podcast. Welcome to Citizen Podcast. This is Carrie Kelly. This podcast is right on time, especially since we are all learning right now how to gather meaningfully despite the obstacles. Priya Parker, author of The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters, and host of the new Together Apart podcast, is inviting us into an inquiry about how to unleash the unique and necessary conversations that we are meant to have. In this episode, we talk about how power works in group gatherings and how to facilitate without getting in the way of the magic. She says, in every group, there is a beautiful conversation that could actually change people. You just have to find out what that is. She calls for good controversy and says it helps us examine what we hold dear, our values, our priorities, and our non-negotiables. As we navigate this moment, which Arundhati Roy calls the portal, we are being challenged to imagine new ways of connecting and organizing so that we can determine how to best move forward together. The art of gathering is essential to remembering who we are, why we are here, and what is possible when we come together apart. Check it out. Priya, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm a huge fan of your work, The Art of Gathering. Um, but, you know, the conditions of gathering have changed since the pandemic. So this conversation about how we gather, how we connect across difference, now how we connect across distance feels more resonant than ever. And I'd just love to know, like, um, how you're connecting, right, digitally or connecting across distance right now. If you have any rituals that you've created online that keep keep you connected and gathering? It is, um, it's a strange time to uh, have spent many years studying gatherings when the world seems to be ungathering. Um, and, and the kind of, the way I've started to think about my relationship to this moment, at least kind of professionally and, and um, I, I would say also as a citizen, is you know, my core training is as a, as a group conflict resolution facilitator and like to get really nerdy, specifically group dialogue, like that is the core of my training. And so much of what I, I, uh, practiced and have learned over the years is how to get a group to meaningfully connect despite obstacles. And in my training, the obstacles are often identity-based or, you know, race or ethnicity or religion or, you know, related to uh, access to power. And as we are all kind of fumbling through this, this corona moment, I've realized that at some level we're still doing much of the same thing, which is how do we meaningfully connect despite obstacles? But the obstacles in this moment look somewhat different. Fumbling, I think, is the right word. I should. I feel like I should just confess to the rest of the group that it took us thirty minutes to figure out the tech on this call. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it's like, what which, are my rituals? Think- what are my rituals to connect to te- to, te- to to tech? Don't pull my hair out. That's <laughs> right. Okay. It's like compassion is my ritual. <laughs> exactly. Are you finding that? people are getting more creative about how they're gathering online um, or are they in, are we inventing new ways of connecting meaningfully across difference and distance? I think that we are at the beginning of this um, and pr- this particularly meaning finding meaningful ways to gather in a way that connects the community, but also is for progress. And Part of what, so, so anytime, so in, an, in offline gatherings, we have an ability somewhat to kind of set the frame of the gathering, right? So if a, a lot of your listeners are kind of facilitators and sort of think about group dynamics, when, if you're creating any type of meeting or retreat or frankly, even town hall, there's a lot of different tools you have to create, to set a context or to, to think about power d- dynamics or power relations, like where you want to seat people, where you're going to put them in a room, you know, the elevation of the room, who has the mic. And as we're translating these skills into the online space, 
we have these inherited structures that weren't actually meant necessarily to gather in all of these ways we're now trying to gather. And when I say that, I mean Zoom, Skype, Google Hangout, Google Meet. And so what we're, so what I, so the first layer I would say, or the first level, if it's like gathering or together apart, you know, version one, I think what I'm seeing is people, many people trying to kind of take what they're doing offline and put it on online as bad as they can, but these sort of diluted versions. And I think version two is hacking the system you have. Um, so I recently got an email. Um, I saw a piece by a facilitator actually um, about how to hack how to hack Zoom to create the feeling of a cocktail party. And it's this mm. lovely piece. Um, it's super simple, but the reason why I like it is because it's actually insight on on power dynamics and choice and agency within the inherited structure of Zoom, like within the actual interface of Zoom. So his name is Misha Gluberman, and he wrote this piece. It's on Medium. Um, and he basically says, if you make everybody a co-host, like if you, the best way around, um, the best way around kind of the breakout room problem and the fact that in any type of uh, Zoom, it's hard to basically control who you want to talk to, right? So right now on Zoom, if you if there's like 20 people on Zoom, usually the host controls the mic or the mute button or it's total chaos. And he says a way to get around this, you can't just kind of bump into whoever you want to unless you make everyone a co-host. And if you make everybody on the call a co-host, that actually creates sort of the same spontaneity that you can have uh, offline. But his caveat is you have to know and trust everyone. So I, I go into this example for a, a bit just in, just to say that I think right now we're at the second layer where once we've kind of got, and we is an asterisk, there's still a lot of people who aren't digitally connected. But once we've got onto Zoom, now it's we're in this phase where people are trying to like hack Zoom. And I think the next evolution is to, is to really think about how do we actually not just try to dilute you know, our offline gatherings into these inherited structures, but how do we create completely new types of gatherings for this moment in time? And a huge mm. part of that question is online, it, is the, the role of power in these, in these gatherings when, mm-hmm. when it's kind of clunky to, to coordinate. Yeah, I love that we're already going there because I do feel like this is one of like the key takeaways for me in your book is that so much about how we gather meaningfully and provocatively has to do with an understanding and an analysis of power. And I know this has been a big inquiry for you in your career, how power works. And it's a question we lean into all the time on this podcast, right? Because we know that power is at work all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Social and institutional power Mm -hmm. that either privileges or oppresses, but also personal power, right? In the way in which we own our purpose and remember who we are and who we are to one another. Mm -hmm. And so I'd love for you to share a little bit about like, what have you learned about how to navigate power in creating gatherings that, because I hear you saying this already, that actually contributes to the redistribution and the restructuring of power. So I would zoom in a lot on just first looking at power within gatherings. Um, and, and the way I think about power in, in a gathering is I define power very simply as decision-making like the ability to make a decision. And this is true for offline gatherings and online gatherings. And I'll, I'll, so there's, if you, if you have, I I define a gathering as anytime three or more people come together for a purpose with a beginning, middle and end. Um, Right. So I'll I'll just do a little table setting first. And so gathering is different. A gathering is different than a community. Um, communities have gatherings and gatherings can build community. But I really think about gathering as like a unit of time where people come together for a purpose and it ends. And I think about that in part because it give us, gives us an anatomy of, to, to kind of to study and to continue to improve. And because we are all part of these gatherings all of the time, all day long. Right now it looks a bit different, but many of us are on 
you know, Zoom calls multiple times a day or phone calls or different parts or, or with our, you know, if you, whoever you're quarantined with. So in a gathering, power is decision-making and there's different phases of that gathering. So first is the gathering begins from the moment it's conceived. The, the, the gathering doesn't begin when the guest walks in the door. The gathering begins, or I think of it as beginning, when at the moment of discovery. So when the guest understands that there's this future kind of promised happening. And so the decision, so decision-making at the very beginning, and particularly in Zoom calls, are things like, before anyone even comes in the door. So there's decision-making ahead of the gathering and then there's decision-making in the gathering. There's power ahead of the gathering and there's power in the gathering. So power ahead of the gathering looks like how ha- ha- seemingly technological decisions. And I'm, I'm in air quotes here, <laughs> which things are, what yeah. platform are we going to have this on? Right. It, it, who can access that? Right? Do you need a landline? Do you need a Wi-Fi? Do you, if, is satellite strong enough, or do you actually need high-speed Wi-Fi? Do you need an iPhone to be able to access a certain type of, or Apple, in, in, in order to access a certain type of app? Right. So that's decision making. But power actually it affects who can actually, like, literally access your event. Um, what time of day? What time? What time of day it is? Um, and who might be able to access it based on where they are in the world or what their obligations are to if they have children or people that they are caretaking for. Um, but then also, what like, what is the purpose of this gathering? Who is this for? What time of, you know, all of that kind of thing. And all of those are, are just simply forms of power. You can simplify it to a family trying to decide where to go to dinner at night. And, and it's like, do we go to... Indian or Italian or Chinese and who decides? Is it always the sister? Is it always the dad? Is it always the mother? But you can actually watch power dynamics through the ways people make decisions. And so to me, it's just a very clear, clarifying lens for all of us to think about how are we, who and how are we making these decisions before anyone enters? And then, and I'll pause here and let you respond, there's the power dynamics in the gathering. And that's a completely different mm-hmm. can of worms right now, given the tools we're using. Mm-hmm. I feel like what you're describing is counterculture in some ways. Like how do we design for gatherings in a way that is counterculture and in a way that understands how power is organized in dominant culture and do something differently? Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, I would, I would separate culture and power. And I think that they they absolutely interact. So when I think about culture, I think I would define it as um, a set of beliefs, norms, and practices um, that uh, that a, that a, that are normative. I mean, I don't even know if they're normative, but that are that are enacted over and over again by a group of people. And I would say that um, power, like who decides what culture is appropriate and what culture is transgressive who decides you know um who the who the who speaks the most who decides who in a wedding can actually hold the power of officiants um who decides who in a church or in a synagogue or in a mosque can be a source of authority all of those elements are informed by culture meaning our deepest sort of beliefs but they are not power power informs like who carries power, who carries the ability to make decisions, interacts with our culture to um, to make us think that certain things are literally normal or abnormal. I want to give a special shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon who are making it possible for us to do this work, especially during this pandemic when we are being called to work harder than ever to expose the inequities of our systems and advocate for the policies that take care of everyone. We could not keep going without you. Citizen Podcast was designed for truth seekers, bridge builders, and emerging activists who are yearning to make a difference. We're not afraid to ask hard questions and have radical dialogue about politics and patriarchy, white supremacy and worthiness, And we're serious about showing up for one another and taking action for the well-being of everyone. But we can't do it alone. 
And building this community on Patreon is our way of sustaining this work in relationship and in accountability with you. By joining our community for as little as $2 a month, you help us create content and resources that matter to this moment. And you get lots of good stuff from us, like early access to our episodes, live community meetups, ally toolkits, and exclusive content. Not only does community support keep us going, but it keeps us accountable and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. Please join us at patreon.com slash citizen well. So how does that impact the role of the facilitator or the host? And this very much feels much more like facilitation to me than hosting, right? Because you're, you're not, you're not passively hosting the kind of gathering that you're talking about. It's really about moving a group towards something, towards um, transformation, towards a meaningful conversation, sometimes towards conflict, which you talk about in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, how does, you know, how does a facilitator hold space for that experience without getting in the way of it, right? Because as the decision maker and the originator of a gathering, you have a ton of power. Mm-hmm. You have power in the design, in the idea, in the naming, in the marketing, in the language, in the invitation, in the how you invite people into the space, mm-hmm. uh, in the how you start the space. I'm just curious, like how, how, how do you check yourself as a facilitator, right? To hold the container with leadership, but also not to get in the way of what, what can emerge right Mm -hmm. from the group when actually change happens. So, um, I love, I love the list of questions that you, um, that you kind of spit out so eloquently though, like gathering is a series of choices, right? Like, by the way, so is art, right? So, Create like gathering is a series of choices made by a number of different people for an outcome. And I'll give an, and so as a facilitator, like, um, this book is called the art of gathering, not the art of facilitating because facilitation is only one part of gathering. And the first step to not get in the way as a facilitator is to ask, what is the purpose? What is the deepest need for this community? And then how might I or we design a structure around it to help us get us there? And then to ask within that structure, how heavily or lightly do I need to facilitate? So I'll give a simple example, mm-hmm. going back to our culture and power conversation. And it's a, an example of ritual. So um, I'm half Indian. My uh, my mother comes from UP, from Benares, and um she is a, uh, a f- radical feminist and has um, spent a lot of, she's a poverty researcher and she's spent her, the last five years of her, of her work really looking at what does it mean to be a good, a good woman in the context of India. And mm-hmm. um, as she's been doing this research, I've been really interested in, the, in how wedding rituals are changing in, in India and particularly among the Hindu kind of Hindu communities, because, um, in, in a Hindu wedding, um, one of the, like one of the most famous rites, and I write about this book are the pharas, which is basically you go around uh, the fire seven times traditionally. And, and if you actually speak the vow, so this is a structure with an intended purpose, um, to, 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 uh, make a couple, a union, right. To get married. And, um, the actual vows, the the rites that are inherited um, in this in this ceremony are deeply misogynistic, and if you kind of look at them, um, and most of them are about uh, like traditional uh, gender roles and making sure that basically the woman is 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 taking care of the home and the and the man is sort of being out in the world. Um, there's there's you know, oaths of loyalty that the woman needs to take, but not the man. I mean, you can, in whatever version you read, it's, you know, I'm some, I'm paraphrasing. And so if you're going back to the intersection of culture and power, in that case, I think in many gatherings, it's, it's not totally clear who the host is, right? So in a wedding, are the, is the bride, and this is for, you know, a heterosexual couple, but whether it's gay or either way, like, are the couple being married? Are they the hosts? Is the person paying mm-hmm. the host? Are the parents the host? Is the officiant the host? 
And then who gets to decide, right? If you go back to power, like where are the decisions being made and how is that family deciding who gets the final say? And so if that couple wants to do these inherited vows, they still want to get married, but they don't want to use those vows. They want to rewrite their vows so that they still walk around the fire, but they, they've, they've rewritten vows so that they reflect the norms that they want as a couple. That, need, that doesn't need to be facilitated, right? That, that is, that's actually designed, mm-hmm. that's a choice that they make within a vow, within a specific structure at a moment in a ceremony that they may actually decide to go through or they want to, they want to maintain certain elements of the ritual to honor their past, but the transgressive act, right? The breaking of culture, to use your language, happens just at the moment of the vows, and so as a mm-hmm. facilitator, a huge part basically is, is to ask, like, what, to me at least, how can I create caring and simple enough structures to help a group do its work? And when the mm-hmm. structure, but, but, but a, and how tight or loose do they need to be? How controlling or not controlling do the structures need to be? Or how much am I needed? Like, in every gathering, it's not clear what the facilitator's for. So just as you should ask, what is the purpose or the need of the community to then ask for each one? And I do this in my work. It's like, what is the deepest need of a facilitator for this gathering? And sometimes it's like, there isn't one. Mm -hmm. It's funny because it reminds me, um, and, and I loved what you were saying earlier about dialogue. And I remember this from your book, and I've heard you say this, that a big motivation and intention of this work is to bring forth a conversation um, a meaningful conversation. I don't know if, if this is a word you would use, but that's that's riskier, right? Yes. Where people are taking risks, where people are leaning into discomfort. And I'm just thinking about like, you know, is, is that the role of the facilitator to be of service to that? Right. And I'm, I, you know, and I think, I don't think of Art of Gathering so much as like a framework as a series of questions. Um, and the core, mm-hmm. like the core of, of, of what I believe creates meaningful transformative gatherings first is to make sure that you're actually addressing a real need, right? So like if you're kind of hosting somebody and nobody wants to be there or nobody wants to do it, like that's information. Um, And so, and then it's like, okay, once there's a real need, who actually absolutely needs to be there? Um, And, and, and you kind of still build on layers based on, based on that original need. So it's not so much that structures, I think structures can be loose or tight if they're fulfilling a need. So for example, you're bringing together Uh, in person, a group of like, um, let's say a multi-generational family that holds a, um, you know, a, a legacy role in their, in their community or in their country. And you've been trying to um, have them to come together and, you know, over generations and, and trying to mend something. And, and finally, 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 or say a former president and their, you know, their clan, their, their, their clan, their group. Um, in that case, in certain cases, it might be enough heat to just literally be in the same room. Right. And you may want deep, tight, tight, tight structure to actually mitigate the risk that they are all feeling kind of finally deciding to come together. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not so much that I'm, um, that I think more or less structured, the structure should match the need. And, um, mm-hmm. um, what was the last question that you asked? Oh, Oh, conflict. Um, Yeah. So I think conflict is one of the things people often a- are asking me these days, like, what are we losing um, by migrating online? <laughs> and I think we're losing healthy conflict. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I think we're losing uh, the benefit of touch and the me- benefit of actually, you know, the, what all of the things that happen when bodies are in the room. But I, but I think it's like it's really complicated right now, and I believe we will evolve to a place where where perhaps this also will be invented. I think that. Um, when you are having a really, when you have, when you're working with a group and you found the right question that hits a note that, you know, kind of wakes everybody up. So in a, you know, in, in a church, it could be like, how are tithes being spent? 
in a newspaper. Mm-hmm. It could be like, what do we actually put on the homepage or the front, you know, or the, uh, or the front page. Um, right now in an, in, you know, many companies and businesses around the country, like what do we do with our staff? Um, how, what do we how, mm-hmm. how do? What do we do about salaries? How? What do we do about our mm-hmm. funders? What do we, what, like? What is the strategy here? Right, like complicated um, conversations that require heat. Um, I think that it's it's you have to like. So first of all, in an in person gathering, it's harder to exit. Right, there's a lot of different ways you can you can kind of stay still engaged. I mean, you could leave. You could literally walk out the door. But you have a lot of tools to kind of keep people in the work. And I think it's harder when you're digitally apart to keep people in the work, right? You can just basically walk away from your desk or turn off your laptop. You can't reach across and say like, hey, touch a hand and be like, hey, like stick with it. Um, I think that we are also in a place where like it's a moment to actually collectively organize. Um, I loved your last newsletter. Um, talking about, you know, Arundhati Roy's framing of a portal um, and like what, mm-hmm. what what is it that we're going to actually use this moment for and how do we actually build anew? And I actually think one of the deepest opportunities right now is how, what does it actually look like and mean to organize in a way in this time um, when you can't come together? And I think we have precedent, right? So whether it's you go all the way back to Howard Dean, or whether you go back to what the you know the Obama campaign did, you know, <laughs> what now feels like a forever ago. Each of those, each of the ways that that each of these campaigns digitally organized was completely novel at the time. And I think we now have an opportunity to begin to think not just for an election, but for that also. But how do we organize in ways while we're together apart in ways that actually create real structural change after Corona? Because it is an opportunity. But we need to figure out how to do this. Well, and in some ways, it makes me think that we have to make our digital organizing and our digital gathering a lot more meaningful. Like we actually can't waste time you know, with sort of like the more surface stuff, because Mm -hmm. that doesn't, it doesn't seem to resonate as much right across um, the internet when we're trying to like engage people and call them in and call them up. You know, we're always in reflection around what are we organizing around, right? Mm -hmm. What are we centering in our organizing? And one of the things that I've heard you talk about that I love is this balance between love and power. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you would call that an organizing principle, but it does feel like essential ingredients (laughs) in the recipe right now of how we move people um, collectively towards action in a way that is both healthy and mutual, right? Because love, I I forget how you said it, so maybe you can help me, but like love without power is anemic, right? And power without love can be really harmful. And you can tell me if that's, that was your framing, but I'm just curious, like, how do you see those two things in relationship with one another as maybe like a value, if you will, (laughs) um, that we can rally around as we think about how we want to move forward together? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wish that was my quote, <laughs> um, but it was. It, I, I I learned about it in a deeper way. It's often attributed to Martin Luther King Jr., but um, I learned about it through Adam Kahane's book Power and Love, and he builds this entire book. He's a facilitator, and he builds this entire book. It's a facilitator's book. It's a facilitator. It's like a facilitator facilitator's book. Um, I love it. I've given out nice. like twenty copies of it, um, and he he frames this work around Paul Tillich's work. And Paul Tillich was a Christian theologian um, who wrote a book called Love, Power, and Justice. And he basically said, and he inspired uh, Martin Luther King, and he, ins- and he basically said there are these two twin forces in all group life, power and love. And he says, and what I love about it is the way he defines power. He says, power is the desire to self-actualize, like no matter mm. what. And love is the desire for the separated to be in union or to be whole, W-H-O-L-E. So to put in an extreme way, well, and with the power, like self-actualized, come what may, right? I have this vision. I don't care about anything else in its way. I'm going forward with it. And he says, power without love is abusive, but 
and this is a part I deeply love, love without power is anemic, meaning it's without blood, it's without life source. And I think in our gatherings, and, and that's been a deeply helpful frame for me as a facilitator, because I kind of intuitively tried when, when I'm doing my core work as a group facilitator in larger groups, kind of na- mitigating conflict. I work with a lot of groups on the left because those are my values, but uh, that's a framework that's very helpful for me, but it's also a framework that I often say to my participants so that they can understand what it is we're trying to go for. And I, a lot, you know, a lot of the core, the possibility right now online is how do we actually bring these two elements into our gathering? So let me give an example of an offline gathering that I, that I saw um, when the, when the, when the Bernie Sanders campaign was still, um, was still happening. Um, it was a surrogate and I'm, I'm, I don't know his name, but he, um, he basically, it was a video of him going into a town hall and to open the town hall, he basically asked a series of questions. He invited, he kind of, it was almost like a a benediction. Like he got up at the, at the top of the, at the top of the room, it may have been a gym or something. And he had everybody close their eyes and then hold hands. And he was, if you can watch the video, he was also like exquisitely um, deft at, at kind of making people comfortable and taking a risk, you know, every 30 seconds. And then he read a series of prompts. Like if you've ever like been scared for your country, if you've ever, if you have a, a, a loved one incarcerated, if, 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 if you have a family member in the police force, if you, if you have ever suffered from alcoholism, if you, you or anyone you've loved has tried to commit suicide, if you worry about paying rent next week, like those may not be the exact prompts, but though, you know, they were kind of like that. And if, if they were true for you, all he asks is you squeeze the hand of the person next to you. And um, mm. I often do this in a lot of my gatherings in a different way, which is I have people stand up and sit down, but, but what I, and ask a series of prompts just to kind of build community and help people see who's in the room. But what I loved about his innovation was it was, it was a collective experience, but no one, he, he turned down the volume of the collective witnessing. You only had to decide if you're going to squeeze your hand and, but you were telling the person next to you left or right, a number of things about you that you weren't planning on revealing. And to me in those three minutes, what he did as a gatherer was literally create and remind everybody of the purpose of the Sanders campaign. And that, that, that though they were in it together, that they may have similar experiences or different experiences, but there is a lot of pain in this country. And I am looking for now ways to create not that experience literally, but what is the of the equivalent emotional organizing moment of how do we actually collectively do Mm -hmm. this online, remembering and actually witnessing each other's pain. I mean, right now we are in a social x-ray of all of the, of, of our social, psychological, economic inequalities and, and infrastructure. And but we actually need ways as storytellers, but also as gatherers and organizers to collectively com- continue to both see it and hold it and then organize around it. Yeah, it's funny because it it's making me, um, well, it's reminding me of the power of story. Yes. Um, but what I love about, and I, and I have seen your masterclass. Um, I haven't seen it in person, but I watched it online and I really love that exercise. And we do a lot of that, those kinds of things too, uh, because we find that it also reminds people um, of their humanity, of their yes. shared humanity, which yes. I think often, especially in political context, we forget a lot. Um, we forget it to the ideology, right? But it's just reminding me of like the power of story and the power of witnessing to not just create like an experience of shared humanity, but it does bring up, I think, the kind of friction and heat that you're talking about mm-hmm. without it being so confrontational. And it makes me think about the culture of civility um, in America, Mm -hmm. right? The culture of um, polite politics, the culture of don't talk about politics at the kitchen table Mm -hmm. and and how we've been, we've been conditioned to believe (laughs) that, that conflict is not love. And in many ways, conflict gets at love even more so than, you know, evasion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Conflict is almost the, healthy conflict is the, is love like tapping fear on the shoulder and saying, it's okay. Like I got this. Mm. And 
I loved what you said earlier about um, sometimes having experience, like share the sharing of stories or doing the, these kind of collective walks or stand up or sit down or any of these exercises that we all, you know, have been trained in allows um, for some, t- some heat to build to see people's lived experiences around you without direct confrontation. And, and just to tease that out a little bit, like uh, confrontation is, is very powerful when it's the right tool. And I think one of the things as, as facilitators, as organizers, that I've always tried to do is understand each tool and know what which tool is helpful for which need. And then also to know like which tool do I have a kind of a gift for, I, I understand, and which tool I'm really clumsy with, right? Um, and how and who can I learn mm-hmm. from to like sharpen that tool in my tool in my toolbox. Um, and I think this 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 question of how high do you turn up the heat and how do you deftly um, allow for heat is is one of the things that I've been really curious about. And I, I think heat can be a number of different things. Heat can very simply be risk, like the level of risk in a room. And there's a lot of forms of risk, psychological, um, social, physical. Um, one of the people one person I've learned a lot from and who's in my book, Ida Benedito is an underground experience designer. Mm-hmm. And, um, she did her, um, her graduate work on the, on, on transformative experiences. And she focused on, um, adventure, like outdoor adventure, wilderness trips, um, funeral parlors and sex parties as these kind of three centered locations of different types of facilitators playing with different types of risk. And, one of her core insights is that transformation cannot happen without some level of risk or some level of disequilibrium. But the power of the facilitator, the host, or as she describes herself, an experience designer, is to understand what level of risk is the healthy level of risk. And she has these four questions she asks. She said, first, what is this group avoiding? Number two, what is the gift in helping them face it? Number three, what is the risk in helping them face it? And number four, is the gift worth the risk? So with all of mm. these elements of heat, like part of our, our job as facilitators is to actually become sophisticated knob turners to understand how and when what is needed. Um, I, I have one more story <laughs> um, that, that you made me think of. You know, I grew up in a deeply conflict-diverse family, right? Sort of ironically, maybe not so ironic. We kind of like figure out our, our pain, you know, through our work. <laughs> um, when my yeah. parents divorced, my father's white American, my mother's Indian. And when they divorced, when they, when they told me they were separating, like I was shocked. Like they never fought. I just, I had no clue. I had no inkling. And, um, and then they both each remarried other people, people who were in many ways reflected kind of the worldview from which they originally came. And then they had joint custody. And so every two weeks I'd go back and forth between these two very, very different homes. And, um, and one was, and I've talked about this before, one was Indian, British, kind of Hindu, atheist, Buddhist, vegetarian, landmark forumy, <laughs> meditating, um, Vipassana, huh. you know, uh, Democrat, liberal, progressive household. And the other one was and is white, evangelical, Christian, conservative, Republican, twice a week church going um, family. And I learned about, so, so, so this, I was raised with don't talk about politics, you know, religion or sex at the dinner table, more culturally. Like it was something I just, you know, I heard a lot and sort of considered polite. And I think as a facilitator, and I, I don't even, I think about this every time, like Adrian Marie Brown's question. I think about this every time I'm in any group, even with friends, or my cousins, which is yeah. like, there's a conversation that needs to ha- be had here. What's the most beautiful version of it? And I don't mean like that everyone's avoiding. I just mean these, and every group you are in, there's a beautiful conversation that could actually change people. You just have to figure out what it is. And with this politics dinner, yeah. I mean, politics, sex, and, and money thing, it's not so much, it's not that you have to say like, I'm a this and you're a that, or like how much money do you make? Or these kind of like, these really like blunt questions, blunt meaning not sophisticated. It's more, how do you begin to structure conversations so that we can actually explore questions together? So for example, with money, things like, 
like what 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 were the cultural beliefs about money in the family in which you were raised right or like what is it that you if you if you had to say what your father would say in one you know what what one parent one guardian would say in one line about what we believed about money what would that be how has your relationship to money changed over time what you know what are the three adjectives that you would describe as money and you don't it doesn't have to be an exercise but there are beautiful questions to kind of get in and around these elements that are actually to, the core of life without just hitting someone over the head um, with how much money they make. Right. Yeah. I love, I love what you're saying about the sophistication and I'm, and I'm also hearing like discernment required yes. for a facilitator. Yes. Um, and it's even making me think about like radical self-awareness, right? Because risk is different for different people yes. in conversations and in gatherings. And, you know, I'm not a, um, I'm a pretty provocative facilitator. Like I'm not afraid to bring the heat. I'm also like white mm -hmm. and deeply privileged <laughs> in society. Right. And I'm just thinking about how that too intersects with the skill and the sophistication that I employ as a facilitate as a facilitator, depending on who is in the room and what we're talking about. Like, and I'm just curious if you have anything to share about how identity and consciousness around one's identity plays into how we hold space for heat and for conflict. It's fundamental. I mean, you can't escape yourself and neither can your group. <laughs> and to identity, if we think about it at first, just through the lens of power, it goes back to our earlier conversation where depending on the need of the group, I mean, and this is now, if I'm thinking about more political conversations or conversation about race or conversations about, um, you know, power in any of its, in any of its uh, access to privilege or, or, or not, who is facilitating that conversation really matters. And that's a design choice, right? That's a, that's a use ahead of time. If we are going to have a conversation about immigration, or if we are going to have a conversation or an organizing around um, Corona in cities, I'm making this up, but like whatever it is, who actually yeah. should be co-facilitating that conversation, not just from the level of skill, but also in terms of their levels of privilege, their levels of trust within a community, their social capital, um, their identity, and 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 their awareness of that identity, whatever it is, um, and and then I think there's also just skills that you that you have in part because however you're raised, your personality. You know, when I was a baby facilitator, one of my first co-facilitators is a woman named Summer Katnani, um, and she she's Arab American, and we we came up together we were in college. And we would uh, sometimes when we would facilitate or co-facilitate sustained dialogue trainings or we, she was really, really, she's great at heat. And like the, the room would start warming up and getting to some provocative topic and she'd kind of start leaning in and was so ready and excited. And was like, here we go. And my palms would get sweaty. And I, even though I knew it was good, I, you know, I'd start breathing heavily and, <laughs> and she kind of, she kind of, she taught me, I watched what she would do. I watched how she'd hold it. I'd watch how she'd lean in with care. Um, and I'd watch her and she was also a friend and I'd watch her in it, how she moved through the world. And that was, she was like, she was welcoming of conflict. And I, I'd never, because of my family context, I'd never met anyone who was welcoming of conflict. I thought it was a bad thing. And then, and then, and then the inverse of that is I am, I was, I'm always, I've always felt very comfortable and love holding kind of emotion. And if people are, you know, and, 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 and grief or, or just simply like sadness. And it's just something that I, I just, I, I just know how to do instinctively and I've been trained and she didn't as much. Um, she'd kind of stop it or try to steer it or in the instinct. And so my instinct was to be able to hold and then she could learn from me. Right. So part of this is also it's, it, yes, there's an element of power and privilege and identity and race and gender and, and knowing who you're speaking to. But I think the second thing is also like our conflict styles affect our groups. And if you have power, whether you're an organizer or whether you're a team leader or whether you are like the head of the volunteers somewhere, your conflict style is going to be mirrored by the group if you have power. And so to be actually aware, am mm. I conflict seeking or conflict diverse? And whichever I am, how do I also turn the knob up of the, of the opposite so that I'm not, so that my shadows aren't, aren't covering the group disproportionately? 
Mm, I love that. And I love the, um, you know, it's not just what is the tool, it's who is the messenger for that particular tool based Mm -hmm. on everything that you just said. I want to close by, you just mentioned that your gift is your ability to hold space for grief. And I feel like we're also in a moment right now where we're experiencing a great deal of collective grief about mm-hmm. um, not just what's happening in this moment, but what's been happening for all of time in this country. Um, I think a lot of what we're seeing is just being exposed, but it's mm-hmm. been at work all along. And I know that you said in your book that that collective rituals often help us navigate hard conversations and help us deal with grief, right? Mm -hmm. And with the healing that needs to come along, I'm assuming adjacent or with, right? Some of the conflict and heated conversations that that we're trying to get at. Mm -hmm. Do you have any, um, I'm thinking about like now that we're kind of coming to the close of our conversation, I'm thinking about like how, what are rituals or tools that you employ um, in some of your gatherings that um, help I know it's not like completing a conversation ever, right? Because mm-hmm. there's never closure to these conversations. <laughs> How do you end? Right? But like, are there rituals? Yeah, like, are there rituals for closing that help people either gain perspective or gain ground, right? Yeah. Or, or remember their shared humanity or, or find some access to healing that allows them to leave and continue the work? Yeah, beautiful question. Um, I, I'll I'll just touch on grief first, um, and I, I would say that as a facilitator, I think my my instinct is is actually even more just being is comfort with emotional vulnerability, and then grief is kind of the you know one of the deepest forms of that. Um, and I think we are right. in a moment where we are going to be starting more and more to be figuring out how to collectively grieve and, and whether that means imagining or reimagining what a funeral looks like in a moment of social distancing or memorials. Um, and this is going to be deeply, deeply important to figure out how to do because it's going to be traumatic. Um, and I think the two two resources that I've that I learned from one is the dinner party. They are a group of twenty and thirty somethings who originally started by um, having dinners all over the country, self uh, self facilitated um, to to for somebody. This is Lennon's party. Yeah, exactly. Has she been on? Yeah. No, but I know her. <laughs> yeah, and um, they are now realizing, kind of over time, that that more than just more than just the loss of a, a loved one, they are, they've become facilitators in loss. Um, and they have a wonderful new handbook out. And the other person who I think is thinking about this in very creative ways is Valerie Kaur. Um, and I don't know when this podcast mm-hmm. will be out, but tomorrow evening she's, she's experimenting. She's hosting like a live collective grieving on Instagram. Um, and again, yeah. I'm just curious yeah. what that even looks like. Um, and I think you know, grief and 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 funerals are are forms of endings and and marking endings. And I think you know some rituals that I do to to mark a close um, is at first I I start signaling that that there will be a close, you know, ten percent before it's closed. So I often say you know gatherings don't often end; they stop, um, meaning like. Oh, it's three o'clock. Okay, everyone, you, know, the, you can get your luggage here, and the, the last shuttle is leaving. You better go run in here. Thank you so much. We'll send out an email. And so the first thing is just to just pause and be conscious that I need to actually close this up. Um, and uh, I've been experimenting with different ways on Zoom. I um, I was facilitating a call a couple of weeks ago, and we we've been starting to with one group I'm working with shorten our calls. So we've we've we have had a number of like day long gatherings canceled and trying to figure out what can we now ask of our participants to kind of push the social issue forward and have decided to do, to limit it to one hour calls, at least for now, in part for everyone's sanity. There's one hour is very short time to get anything across. If you're trying to do kind of really serious work in a larger group. So we're running out of time. I was supposed to have 10 minutes for the close. I had like 30 seconds. (laughs) And, um, I think what I, I had a checkout question and I think it was going to be something like, um, what is one word or phrase that you would like to put into this group that you believe is going to be crucial for us to now do this work in this new reality. Mm. And, um, and because we had 30 seconds left, I just said that. And I said, put it into the chat box. And we had, you know, and we had 14 words kind of pop up and, 
it was this, it was a small hack and it's not rocket science. Um, but it's like, no matter how much time you have, even if it's just the last little squeeze of the, you know, of the minute, I always think I, in my head, I'm thinking two things. One is how can I make meaning of this time we spent together? And how do I want to hold my power as, as a facilitator to remind people of that and to distill and discern going back to power to make decisions of what I think happened here and to tell them that. And then number two, mm -hmm. how can I give voice to the people in the room in a way that doesn't take three hours? And so it goes back again. It was like, what's the closing question? And ideally each time it's a little bit fresh and doesn't feel like you're going on autopilot that would allow people to, to leave in a way that you, that they're, you know, that they're a little bit shifted by what transpired. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for not just for your work, but for how you continue to like push the edge of it forward. <laughs> I see you doing that with your new podcast together apart, which is all around how we gather online, right? How we're gathering yes. in this moment where we're separated physically, but we're trying to find social solidarity. Your book is brilliant. And I just can't wait to see where you go next with this work. I will for sure be following. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for, um, inviting us to have conversations at the intersection of of power and culture and healing um, and to get into the weeds of it because because change happens in the weeds <laughs> I go higher and feel the music soothe breath of fresh air channeling the most time. while this podcast is coming to an end our work in the world is just beginning this week's call to action is to reimagine how we can be together apart. And a good place to start is by subscribing to Priya's new podcast, Together Apart, which is part guide, part reminder of the resiliency of the human spirit to still creatively gather even while we have to be apart. You can subscribe on her website at priyaparker.com and submit gathering ideas or inquiries for coaching on the podcast. Priya's book, The Art of Gathering, will change you and how you bring people together. So be sure to buy it. And you can follow Priya on Instagram at Priya Parker. Special thanks to DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And to our executive producer who puts it all together and makes it sound great, Trevor Exter. And thank you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $2 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. And share the love, y'all, by telling your friends to check us out. 